0: would be hard-pushed to find someone who has as much passion about saving animals as Carl Scar. The 54-year-old, who lives in Chelmsford, was once driving taxis after a business venture went south, but he soon gave all that up to pursue his love of animals. The reason that triggered it all? A mosquito bite. These days, Carl has forged a reputation for his zoological work and is the co-founder of an animal sanctuary in Morocco. He has saved countless animals from widespread everyday cruelty and he is also one of the world's foremost experts on canine behaviour. Of course, that may have something to do with the fact that he lived with 150 dogs in a giant kennel for four years. However, recent times have been increasingly tough for Carl. A major heart attack in 2016 prevented him from returning to the work he is so passionate about for a significant amount of time. But just as his health was improving, luck turned against him once again. In November 2017, while out celebrating his birthday with friends, Carl was assaulted in Chelmsford City Centre and suffered a brain haemorrhage as a result of the attack. He required emergency brain surgery to save his life after coming moments from death and while he has managed to come through all that, it may still take him two years to recover from his injuries. Brought to you by Essex Live, this is Humans of Chelmsford, and this is Carl Scar's story. Thank you so much for inviting us to chat um, about your life on this episode, Carl. Um, You're welcome. It's massively appreciated, as I know things haven't been terribly easy uh, in recent months. Um, but we'll get on to all of that in a minute, because first, let's talk about animals, because I okay. love animals, and clearly you love animals as well. Indeed. So, first off, what is it about animals that just makes you adore them so much?
1: They're cognitive like humans, and humans don't realise it. Um, humans take everything that we have learnt as a human race from animals, flight, construction, Underground construction, uh, acoustics, uh, radar, sonar. Animals do it better. We haven't caught up with them yet. If you try and get the top fighter pilot in his in his multi-billion-pound aircraft to chase a bat. He'll lose. The bat will win. Mm. And bat can do it blindfolded. Exactly. So animals are fascinating, and they have as much empathy as humans. But humans just don't know that yet.
0: That's, a, that's also one of the main things for I me and why I love them so much is that you get so much unconditional love from them and it's, it's only one way.
1: Absolutely. Uh, animals don't lie. They're incapable of lying. so You just get the honesty from them all the time. And uh, you never get an animal that wants to commit suicide or die. Every animal wants to live. Humans are the ones that want to want to commit suicide and die. Humans are the ones that give up. Animals never give up.
0: Going back to you and your, your past, I believe you drove a cab at one point, if that's right. Yes,
1: I had uh had uh, three taxis on the road. Um funny story, I, I had pubs and restaurants and then um I bought a nightclub in Mallorca. Um, and in case it uh, went went wrong which it did, I uh The taxi driver taking us to the airport said, why don't you get a taxi and put that on the road just in case and he'd drive it for me and that's what happened and -hmm. when I came back from New York I started driving the cab and I stayed with the cab for 12 years and it allowed me to raise my daughter as well so when she was in bed I was at work.
0: Mm -hmm. So when came the decision to sort of put that on the back burner and focus fully on zoological work?
1: Um, Once again, a bit of a funny story. I was bitten by a mosquito on Midsummer Common in Cambridge, which gave me um, Group A Streptococcus. So I was admitted to Adam Brooks Hospital that night, and uh, they was going to amputate my leg, and the next morning the consultant came in and he kneeled down and said, "Uh, we have good news, we can keep your leg, but the bad news is you've got MRSA. So I ended up with MRSA, C. difficile and streptococcus. And in the infectious disease ward where you had to shower to come in and out and keypad entry and everything, I kept trying to escape because I'm claustrophobic and don't like hospitals at all. And I was quite good at it, actually. They had to keep chasing (laughs) me down the corridor in my wheelchair. But um, I said if I survive, I'm going to... uh, drive through the Sahara Desert in a few months' time, and uh, I want to do the degree in zoology at Cambridge. And I did both. And
0: yeah. That's qu- yeah, quite a story to trigger that decision, <laughs> I suppose. And in the end, you, you went and did the degree at Cambridge University.
1: And I run uh, a company that races mm. cars for the Sahara Desert now.
0: That's, it's quite a, th- a thing <laughs> to have on your CV, that, isn't it? Now, I'm going to come to your kind of association with Morocco. Okay. Because obviously that's where you co-founded the Animal Sanctuary um, that I'm sure you can say a lot better than me in French. Because um, it translates as the Wild Animal Sanctuary of Tangier. And I believe you set that up Tangier, in, in yeah. 2012. What is it about Morocco that kind of led you to that country and, and why do you have such an association with it?
1: Initially, I I wanted to go to Kenya. I, I like Kenya. And I had the opportunity to to go and work in the Galapagos because I've been over there doing some tagging on the the giant tortoises. Um, So initially those two were the dream jobs that I was going to go for. But my wife, who's Moroccan, who's now my ex-wife, her uh, father was ill. So we went over in 2012. Um, So I decided to set up an animal sanctuary to, to do some rescue work there because over 17 years of going to Morocco I saw how bad uh, animal welfare, well it's non-existent over there actually is in is in Morocco and in Tangier where my wife's parents lived so whilst she was looking after her father in the first three months we got... Um, The Sanctuaire de la Forme de Tanger SFT going Um, we went over there with three dogs and a duck and now there's four or five hundred animals there and in those four or five years we've rescued probably three thousand animals and helped communities as well because if you don't help the communities they won't help the animals simple as that and they also uh, they they're very very poor and they have to rely on donkeys and uh, of course, the shepherds have got their their, their sheep and the drovers with their cattle. And uh, they all get poorly. Now, basically, we fix them up. So we help the communities and help the animals at the same time.
0: Was a large part of it, you mentioned um, sort of the cruelty that still goes on, was a large part of it, trying to educate those people as well, that Absolutely. you should care about animals in the same way we do.
1: Absolutely. We used to go into schools and universities, colleges, to lecture on... Um, the animal welfare and the benefits of animals um, and also to try to eradicate, eradicate uh, rabies, leptospirosis parvovirus, canine distemper we used to go into areas to clean those up so it was welcomed uh, hard going but welcomed Yeah.
0: Uh, now if you google your name uh, t- the top news items that come up um, are related to your love of dogs <laughs> namely yeah. that The fact that you built a giant kennel at the sanctuary, which housed, I think, around
1: 150-odd dogs? Yeah, that's right, yeah. Um, And then you moved in with them? Well, initially when we got the land, it was just a field. And uh, I moved on to a field with a tent and 60 dogs that were rescued. And uh, then put a, a fence around the area that I was in, then started building a, a dog house for us all. And, uh, yeah, within three months, I had a 180-square-metre dog house with about 150 dogs, and uh, I lived in there with them. Obviously, didn't have any furniture or any bedding or anything, so I used um, the branches off a eucalyptus tree and made myself a large double bed, which was like a bunk bed, so um, a number of dogs could sleep on the bunk below me. And I slept on the top bunk, top double bed, with uh, a couple of the other dogs. And, uh, yeah, I lived like that. And I did that for four years. It was fantastic. No electricity, no running water. Great.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Not sure everyone else would see it that way. (laughs) Um, Does part of you ever think... Now, what on earth was I thinking?
1: No, I'd I like to do it again in, tomorrow. And in fact, I will do it again as soon as I'm better. I've been, been ill, as you, as you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, as soon as I've, my, I have my health, I'm going to go back to living in a field and Crocodile Dundee or Indiana Jones, whatever you like to call it.
0: So what is it about that way of life that you kind of prefer rather than, say, the modern day way of life where you have running water and you have you know, cooking facilities and things like that?
1: I prefer the, the stress of dealing with animals and wildlife than the, than the stress you get with the people in city life. Um, animals are kinder, they're nicer. Every day I find 20 to 30 scorpions that I have to get out of my shoes, <laughs> keep <laughs> away from the animals because they try to kill the animals and they do indeed kill the animals. Um, we've had uh, fighting away a cobra that's... Uh, just bit one of my monkeys and sadly Dolly died from the cobra bite Hmm. um but that's a far nicer way of living and closer to nature than being in a city i just do not like the cities and i can't can't be around arguments and situations like i found myself in over here Mm -hmm. just do not enjoy it
0: yeah exactly and i I can vouch for that because you mentioned before how much you love Kenya and it's a country yeah. I have grown to love as well because I've been there a fair few times yeah. and it's just such a natural place and you're in touch with nature so closely yeah. and it's truly spectacular to be in and just to see every time you wake up in the morning.
1: Oh, Kenya's the most spectacular of all. It beats the Galapagos even. I love uh, Kenya. Um, I'll get out there again one day, I'm f- that's for sure.
0: And um, going back to dogs as well, I know you here at your home in Chelmsford you don't have 150 dogs but you do have two yeah and i believe did you rescue one of them and brought brought them back over from morocco
1: yeah i uh i travel with these two uh ollie i took with me is a little dachshund chihuahua cross over to morocco he's actually became the boss of the whole pack unbelievably only weighs four kilos but he's got a huge personality and he was in charge of Rottweilers, pit bulls, wolves, everything you can think of. And they would part as Little Wally would walk through. And uh, I've also got Tyson here in England. Um, American Staffordshire Bull Terrier. They were trying to drown him in a bow in the sea. And um, I think he must have been a, a bait dog because of removed his canine teeth as well. Mm. He's the softest, most lovable dog i've ever met and yeah he's here with me also see when you, when you say that
0: it just baffles the mind that people could do that to an animal no,
1: I, unfortunately i see that every day reg it's a regular thing to um, find dogs that have purposely been run over i've seen cars purposely driving to uh, puppies to to kill them for fun i've seen them cut their throats set them on fire put wire around their throats and hang them to see how long it takes for them to die, Uh, chop tails off, legs off, Uh, lay a dog on a railway track tied up and watch the train run its back legs over. I have those dogs. I've rescued those dogs and I've got 18 wheelchairs. And they're happy running around now, but this is what I see.
0: Yeah, and they're they're the lucky ones in the end, really, because you managed to get to them. Yeah, these are the ones Mm -hmm. we
1: managed to get to and saved. Now the,
0: another favourite fact of, of mine about you um, which you told me about last time I met you was Carlitos a giant <laughs> tortoise um, yeah. who is a great name for a, a tortoise anyway but why is Carlitos so special
1: uh, that was a huge privilege I was in uh, I went to Galapagos to see a friend uh, Felipe he's the director of the Charles Darwin Foundation and whilst there Uh, I met a chap from Dartford who was the giant tortoise expert on Santa Cruz Island in the Galapagos. And so we went out for the day and it was actually uh, Darwin's 200th birthday. Uh, So it was very apt that we were there with the giant tortoises and they did a a naming ceremony. And whilst we were tagging uh, with uh, radio locators, tracking devices for the tortoises to check their migratory pattern uh, to check the ecological factor of um, little biomes that are built up by the giant tortoises. It's akin to an African elephant. Basically they eat, they walk, they defecate and a new biome pops up in the faeces. And uh, the giant tortoises are the ecologists of uh, the Galapagos as the uh, African elephant is of the savannas. And uh, so they were doing a naming ceremony of this tortoise that had met Darwin, the only living animal they knew that had met Charles Darwin. And Steve, uh, unbeknown to me, he said, uh, we're going to name this tortoise Carlitos after my friend Carlitos here. Uh, not because of his good looks, but because of his ample bulk. <laughs> which, <laughs> which was very funny, but it's actually been documented. <laughs> so it's not so great afterwards. <laughs> so people
0: later down the line in future will be able to go back in history and read that.
1: Yeah, and they, that I look like a 300 kilo giant tortoise. <laughs> <laughs> Do they have any idea how old Carly Toss is? Uh, they said over 200 when, when they named him. Yeah. yeah, think
0: of the things he's seen.
1: Well, Lonesome George, he was only 90, and everyone thought he was the oldest tortoise. He's passed away now. Last of the Pinto Island tortoises. But Carlitos, yeah, he's seen everything. Mm. 200 years of history.
0: And, of course, it's not just you know the Morocco work that you do, because, as you mentioned, you go across to Galapagos and things like that, and you, you write books as well on canine behaviour.
1: Yeah, I write books on dogs. I like dogs. Yeah, yeah I've, I've, you live I've with done 150 four now. Of them. <laughs> yeah. I've written four books now, Uh, started with Leader of the Pack, Um, it's about pack dynamics and living in a pack of dogs, Um, as the pack grew, the socialisation, the aggression, the behaviour therein, and uh, then uh, I've written a book on aggression that I noticed whilst in the pack, and of course all the canine diseases, so I've written a book on canine disease, and because of the 25 years of the Dangerous Dog Act being implemented by the UK and the rest of the world following, the rest of the world have overtaken us in the fact that they are changing their legislation because of breed specific legislation. Uh, whereas we are still harbouring breed specific legislation, which means they're saying that pit bulls are dangerous and all. Um, bull terrier breeds are dangerous when um, it's not the case if you official figures you look at official figures the labrador is the most dangerous <laughs> hunting breeds are the most dangerous um, all dogs buy it so there is no specific breed to what will which you could call a dangerous dog any dog can be dangerous same as any human can be dangerous And moreover, you find that the only dogs that are dangerous are the dogs that have been raised badly by humans. And they're the ones that are normally timid, have been beaten, and then are cornered and do not know what to do. Their only means of escape is normally to nip, to get away. If they're provoked to such a degree that there is no exit for them, then it's either fight or flight. And they've already tried to fly it. They've already tried to get away. And their last option, as they can't speak, is to bite. Mm-hmm. so it's down to people it's not down to the animal
0: yeah.
1: And uh, uh, animals never voluntarily attack unless they want to eat you and a lion, you can walk past a lion you know, 80 to 80% of the day all it'll do is open one eye and look at you and go back to sleep when it's hungry, if it needs to eat, it'll eat but it won't go out and say well I think I'll go and bite another 30 people it just doesn't happen animals only eat Only fight and bite to eat Mm -hmm. and to mate, but they're not gonna, if they want to mate, they're not gonna attack us to mate, they'll attack another male. Mm.
0: Exactly, and I suppose, on that regard of animal mistreatment in this country, every time it appears on the news, I hate reading those stories. Is the legislation in place? in In terms of punishment that you'd like to see, or would you like to see more severe punishments and things like that over here? Mm.
1: what for dog breeds? And, yeah, exactly, and, yeah, I'd like to see owners prosecuted. I'd like a dog license to be be reintroduced mm-hmm. and that would stop stop a lot of the puppy farms and uh misappropriate use of the dogs in a better way of saying it for street gangs and drug dealers they're using the muscle breeds, even the All the muscle breeds, they're known as the nanny dog because they were so good with children. And that's what the book I've written about, uh, I I covered. Um, The book's called Banned Breeds, and it was directed at all banned breeds throughout the world, not just in the UK. Um, Canada took up the mantle, and uh, uh, I wrote a piece for uh, Canada uh, in in regard to breed-specific legislation And uh, the rest of the world is seeing it as it really is now, but the UK are not. So fines should be imposed, breed-specific legislation should be, it's it's a defunct law now. Any sensible person knows it's not breed-specific. Any sensible person knows that that Jack Russell or that Yorkshire Terrier or that Chihuahua, you've got far more chance of getting bitten by that than you do a German Shepherd or a Rottweiler or Staffordshire Bull Terrier.
0: Uh, Now, as we've alluded to uh, along this this interview, you're obviously not well at the moment, and it's been a tough couple of months for you. And, of course, that's sadly how our paths crossed, because I came along to interview you about um, uh, an assault that you suffered in Chelmsford City Centre when you were out celebrating your birthday in November. To summarise, it was you and your friend Gavin, and um, you were attacked, and then you ended up suffering a brain hemorrhage as a result of it and had to go for emergency brain surgery to save your life effectively horrible horrible thing to go through Mm. and um, I know that it's really severely impacted you at the moment
1: it has I mean the reason why I'm not working in rescue at the minute is because I came over to see my children and had a major heart attack so that slowed me down but I was just recuperating and then was assaulted and ended up with the brain hemorrhage and that's really put the dampener on things actually worse it's actually worse than the the heart attack because you can you actually recover quite quickly from a heart attack but the brain hemorrhage is taking forever it really is, your pain every single day uh, constantly it, it just doesn't go away and, and uh, you've got three hours of feeling sick every day, my arm still numb not con- not continually but certainly a number of times throughout the day where you can't feel anything in my right hand uh, I can't think properly to be able to write I can't even read the book properly because it's kind of giving me a dyslexia where the, the letters are reversed and numbers are, are reversed and sometimes I forget my daughter's name and uh, what bank I'm with and things like that I've been told that I will get some memory back to what extent I do not know So things are on hold for the minute, but I'll certainly be getting back into animal rescue and welfare, but likely over here if I can, in England rather than in Morocco, where there's no medical facilities. Uh, Spain would be another option, or possibly France, but I have connections in Spain that want me to set up an animal sanctuary out there on the prototype of the Moroccan sanctuary that we've got. But it may well be in England. So we'll have to wait and see.
0: Yeah. And it's the most frustrating thing then, the fact that you don't know how quickly you're going to recover. Yeah. At all, I'm, Rather than, you know, the injuries themselves.
1: I'm always optimistic. And I thought, after I had the heart attack, great, right, Bosh, straight back into it. And I was into the gym and I got fit again. And feeling good. Heart's doing doing well. And then um, I had the, the brain hemorrhage. And I thought, right bosh just knock this one out the ballpark as well get stuck in but no they said it'll take you know three to six months maybe up to two years and i thought oh yeah i'm sure they're right it really looks like now and it's quite disappointing that it really does look like i will be ill for that length of time Mm. it just doesn't go that quickly and uh it's very frustrating and it's you know you really i don't know to what capacity i'll be able to work again being i'm being optimistic i think i'll be back to, to you know full throttle but that has to be seen i have to wait to be seen and that because at the moment if i can't write or read and that's been is out the window so we have to see
0: mm-hmm. but once you are feeling well again you obviously mentioned setting up animal sanctuaries potentially in spain potentially here yeah definitely is that effectively what's going to drive you on throughout however long this takes to recover absolutely you'll get to do that again
1: absolutely yeah already planning for it so it has -hmm. to be done
0: that's great and Mm -hmm. and with that we better wrap up and i just want to say thanks again for sharing your story and i really wish you all the best in your recovery because i think the work that you do as an animal lover myself Mm. is is tremendous and there's not enough people that share that passion in the world for me.
1: Okay, well, thank you very much.
0: Follow Essex Live on Facebook, Twitter, and on Instagram. Go to our website, essexlive.news.